final person interviewed for this program was Dr. Bernard Escudier, who met with me at ASCO the day before he presented data from a Phase two randomized trial evaluating combined biologic therapy. The study we set up was to have this experimental arm combining temsorolimus and bevacizumab, and we decided to have two control arms just to check that our patient population was not biased too much. So the two control arms were our standard arm in kidney cancer. One was sunitinib, which is the most used treatment, and the other one was interferon BEV. So the two approved therapy in first line at that time and the experimental arm. So what we tried to look at was PFS, which was in fact our primary endpoint was a percent of patients non-progressive at 48 weeks, almost one year. And the idea we had based on previous phase three with both sunitinib and BEV to have at least 50% of our patients not progress at 48 weeks just to think it would be good enough, I mean, to go to phase three. The reality was not that one. I mean, in fact, this experimental arm is much more toxic than anticipated. So when you go to large phase two multicentric, I mean, we had more than 50% of the patients who had to stop treatment because of toxicity. And unfortunately, also, the activity is not as anticipated. I mean, the response rate was disappointing with 27% response rate. The PFS was only 8.2 months. So not good enough, I mean, to have any expectation for this combination in the future. And I see you had two toxic deaths. What kinds of toxicity were the most problematic? I mean, the most problematic toxicity was in general mucositis, anal and colorectal hemorrhage and mucositis. So we had a list of complications from hemorrhoids to colorectal perforation to bleeding, which was altogether, I mean, a long list at the end. And this was the main toxicity we observed in this patient population. Interesting. You know, the two, quote, control arms are kind of interesting in that I know the study was was randomized phase two, but it does bring up the question that I don't know that we know the answer to in terms of randomized phase three, which is sunitinib versus BEV interferon. So unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. I mean, people are going to look at the control arms. And that's something which everybody should be very careful about when you look at phase two. Everybody should know and knows in general that phase two are only phase two. So when you look at a 40 patient population, you know, when you look at data, you have confidence interval and everybody forget about confidence interval. And when we see our data, I mean, the PFS for sunitinib was only 8.2 months in this study. The PFS of interferon BEV is 16 months in this study. Big change. Response rate is higher with BEV interferon than it is with sunitinib. But that's what can happen with phase two. And we should know that. So what's the explanation for that? The explanation is that probably, I mean, the group are not the same. Although when we look at the two groups in terms of classical prognostic factors, I mean, nothing really serious appears to be different between the two groups. But it it cannot be significant because, you know, when you have 40 patients in each group, the chance that you have statistical difference is not huge. The only difference we really observe, which is not significant, is that in the interferon-BEV group, more patients had a long interval between primary and metastasis. So that probably means that these are a little more indolent disease, but still, I mean, PFS is longer, which 
probably means that these patients are the best candidate for interferon BEV. Might be the case. It also confirmed for me that these two treatments are probably quite equivalent and that the people were thinking that interferon based was not equivalent to sunitinib are wrong. I think that's two quite equivalent therapy, and that's what the guidelines say. And finally, I mean, it makes sense probably in a large group of patients to start with BEV, interferon BEV, or maybe in the future BEV alone. But it might be a good way to start treatment with kidney cancer. And I think the good thing is that this drug has been now approved in the U.S., so I think people are... Probably based on this data being confirmed that this strategy starting with BEV is not stupid. Are we going to have phase three data looking at this question? So we won't. I mean, nobody has been engaged in phase three comparing sunitinib and interferon BEV. I don't know if it will come further. There is an ongoing phase three which compares interferon BEV to temsorolimus BEV, which, I mean, based on our data, should not be recommended. But in fact, it's ongoing. So it's... It's there. It's there. So we'll see what people do. We'll see what's going to happen when we discuss with our IDMC and methodologists about the chance that the phase three is going to be positive. They said less than five percent based on your phase two, which was uh, well conducted. So we'll see. Can it be in the five percent range? Probably it's very little chance that the phase three is going to be positive. But we'll have confirmations that interferon BEV is a good alternative to sunitinib. Given the caveats that you mentioned of the fact that it's a phase two study, what about side effects and toxicity of the two control arms? It was as anticipated based on the phase three. So we didn't get any surprise in terms of toxicity of both arms. So the only thing we saw in the interferon BEV arm is proteinuria, which was most common that we have with sunitinib. And we had to stop treatment based on our protocol in a series of patients. That's why interruption of treatment is higher in the interferon BEV harm than in the sunitinib arm. But we didn't observe any new toxicity, any surprising toxicity in the two control arms. I mean, I would guess that maybe quality of life might be better in the BEV interferon arm, particularly if the interferon was dose reduced aggressively the way you've reported. Yeah. Is that I, the case? I think we'll see. We don't have analyzed yet the quality of life data. I think I'm always a little anxious about quality of life data on a small group of patients. I'm not sure that we'll see a lot of differences. Fatigue has been an issue, but it results very fast when you decrease the dose of interference. So it's not a real issue, but it occurs. And the question of our quality of life data and our toxicity scale is that you analyze in the same way a patient who has a fatigue grade two or three for six months or a patient who had a grade two fatigue for only one week or two weeks. And it will appear in the table as the same toxicity, which is probably not the same for the patient. So I really think that toxicity of interferon BEV is quite easy to manage. It has some toxicity, but I think it's a real alternative to sunitinib or pazopanib probably in the future, we'll see. Well, the quality of life data I like because a lot of those data, to me, it's very hard to interpret is asking people who've used the drug. And, you know, I've heard people talk about the challenges of sunitinib and fatigue there, which seems like a lot more than there is with Bev interferon. Overall, globally, what is your sense about just how people feel on these two types of approaches? I think that's a good question. And I think what is important for the patient is what they feel and what they prefer. There is a new session here at ASCO, which is a trial 
session. I don't know if you have seen that. So the new trials are going to be presented. And we just started what I think is a very exciting trial, which has as a primary endpoint the patient preference. So in this trial called the PCES trial, we are going to compare in a double-blind manner pazopanib and sunitinib with a crossover to the other drug after 12 weeks. And the primary endpoint will be at the end of the 24 weeks period, we'll ask the patients, which drug did you prefer, drug A or drug B? Wow, fascinating. So it's not only quality of life, which will be secondary endpoint. But at the end, I mean, the patient will say, I did prefer X or Y because that. And that's something which is probably important because some patients don't have any bad sense of having diarrhea. Some can handle that. Some don't care about fatigue as much as they care about hand food, skin action, and so on. So I think that's an important issue. And today, I think that, we don't know, I think some of the reports suggest that pazopanib can have better safety profile than sunitinib. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know yet. Any thoughts about whether there's a correlation between efficacy and dose administered of the TKIs? Yeah, it's a difficult challenge. And also, I mean, we don't have yet the data showing that if you aggressively manage the patients, I mean, insisting of keeping on the good dose and so on, we have better data. So we got those data, for example, for testicle cancer and for this kind of cancer that data and results are better in very experienced center. I see in my own practice, I mean, a lot of patients who have dose reduction of sunitinib in situations where I would not have dose reduced. Some doctors, I mean, start with 25 milligrams, for example, because they fear about toxicity. And at the end, I mean, that's very important to know whether they do wrong or not. I mean, it's not standard. But for community oncologists, I think they should realize that doing this type of things might impair the patient's data and results. So I think quality of life is important, but if we can prolong survival, if we can cure some patients, it's important. And one of the data I encourage people to look at is we are presenting in one of our posters a group of more than 60 patients with complete remission with TKI, which means that we start to see complete remission with these kind of agents. So it's certainly not as common as we have with IDOS-IL-2. But if we select the patients, if we treat the patients correctly, I mean, we will get some complete remission. So these people got both sunitinib and serafinib? Yeah, so we looked at patients treated with both sunitinib and serafinib. I mean, most of the patients, in fact, were with sunitinib. Five, I think, were with serafinib. So interesting observation we did was we were in real life whether, I mean, we stopped or not the treatment. And most of us, based probably on recommendation we did in France, decided to stop treatment when patients came to complete remission. Based on the fact there is absolutely no reason for us to continue on treatment when you have real complete remission. And that's what we get with IDOSIL2 and so on. And... I mean, 60% of the patients did not relapse at that time. So we'll see further. Of course, follow-up is not long enough. But it probably means that you can stop treatment. And when you reintroduce treatment, it can work again. So I think it makes some good time for the patients, I mean, being out of treatment for a while at least. Of course, there's no denominator on these 65 patients. No. But if you were to make a rough guess, what's the likelihood of complete remission with sunitinib? 
Of course, I mean, the number of patients is not large enough, so we were not able to find out uh, prognostic factors. For example, we had some patients in the poor risk group, we went to computer mission. We had some patients with multiple sites of disease, so it's not only good risk patients with lung medicine alone, so it's probably a little different for what we get from cytokine error. So we get some patients with liver meds in computer mission, with bone meds in computer mission. So we have probably to wait for a larger group of patients, but interesting point is that it's not only lung metastasis and good risk patients. If I were to say, is this chance of complete remission more than 5%? No, it's probably less than 5%. So it's probably in the range of 1% or 2%. So it's still low, of course. But at least it's a hope. And it's answering a question that we have in many kidney meetings is, should we continue on drug when the patient goes to computer mission or should we stop? And I think at least it supports that we can stop and monitor the patients and reintroduce if they relapse. But I think it answers a good question for us. I know a lot of people talk about pizopinib maybe being better tolerated, but I don't know. Would it surprise you if it turned out that they were the same? No, it won't. It won't. I think the real question, as I alluded before, is what is important for the patient? And probably each patient has something different in mind. Some patients will tell you, I mean, I don't care about side effects if I can get cured or if I can live longer. Some patients will tell you, I prefer to live a shorter period of time, but with a good quality of life. And each patient is really different. So that's the way we should look at what patients think and not what doctor thinks. What do we know right now about pizopinib in the liver? So what we know is that probably something like 10% of the patients receiving pazopanib will develop a liver tox. And if they don't, 90% of those patients who don't will never develop liver tox and will have probably a better safety profile, probably a better safety profile that with sunitinib. That will probably come from the ongoing phase three, comparing sunitinib and pazopanib head-to-head, which is a 900 patient trial. It's almost completed in terms of accrual, so we should get the data in two years from now. So we'll see. What do you find yourself in terms of the use of sunitinib to be most problematic? I hear a lot about the fatigue. I think I would say that sunitinib is not so difficult to use when you get used to the drug. But the toxicity profile is sometimes quite heavy. I mean, 20% of the patients has really high toxicity. Probably 80% of the remaining patients have some toxicity, but with time, I mean, over time, I mean, they start to accumulating fatigue and to be bothered by the drug. And something that we don't know is if we can stop, if we can do a longer rest period, if we can dose decrease without impairing the patient. And I don't know yet. We've talked about the TKIs. Any comments about side effects and toxicity seen with the mTOR inhibitors? So I think what's probably the most problematic toxicity with mTOR inhibitors is mucositis at the beginning. So after and the stomatitis, are, which are quite different from what we observe with TKI, is something that is bothering the patient at the beginning. Then the second toxicity, which is sometimes difficult to handle, is the metabolic toxicity, diabetes, and sometimes hypercholesterolemia, and we don't know whether we should treat them or not. 
And finally, something which is actually a common problem is what should we do when we have some asymptomatic pneumonitis and some changes in CT scan. And in fact, when you look carefully at the CT scan, I mean, probably 30 to 40% of the patients develop some interstitial changes. And yeah, that one sounds very tricky clinically. Yeah, and also because some patients will develop a severe pneumonitis and some will never develop anything. So guidelines are coming. I mean, we just published a paper on the record one trial on Everolimus with Dorothy White, who was the first author on that, looking at pneumonitis in the Everolimus phase three study. Some paper are coming on consensus guidelines on this issue. So that's something which is coming too. And that's probably something which is for oncologists who are not aware of this toxicity, something which can frighten them. What about the steroid responsiveness of the pneumonitis? Is it there or is it just sort of healed by itself? I think it's there. I mean, when you give steroids to this pneumonitis, you cure most of them. So my practice is first to be sure that there is nothing suggesting an infectious pneumonitis. So if we start to have fever, if you start to have sputum, you have to fear about uh, infectious pneumonitis. But in fact, it's not common. So if you don't have this sign, I mean, give a short course of steroids, and most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, it will disappear, patients will get good, and then most of the time you can continue on drugs. So it's something you have to know. It's not so difficult to take care of in most of the patients. There have been a lot of interest, obviously, in pizopinib in terms of the question of whether as your trial is going to look at whether or not it may be better tolerated or that there will be patients who prefer it. We also have serafinib out there, and I have this paper that Janet Dutcher and a couple of you all put together looking at serafinib in the older patient. What about serafinib in renal cell cancer from that perspective? I think serafinib is probably a better tolerated drug apart from end foot skin reaction in a group of patients. I mean, there are some patients who develop a severe end foot skin reaction, which is something difficult to handle. But that's probably 10 to 15%. Outside of that, I mean, generally, the safety profile is good. Um, the efficacy is certainly a little less than with sunitinib. But in a sequential manner, when you think about those patients who are going to receive several drugs in sequence, I think it's an active drug. So question being, is it easier to deliver to some subgroup of patients like older patients, like cardiac patients, like patients with different situations. And I think safety profile is okay. And one of the questions I have is what's going to be the future in kidney cancer? Is it going to be like in colorectal cancer? We have four or five drugs. We don't matter about the order. We give the drug. We have to give all the drugs at one point. Or should we be in the situation where we have to use the most potent one first and the less potent one third or fourth. I don't know. I think the paradigm here is that maybe we should start not with the most potent one and keep the most potent one for the end. It might be something which we discover in the future. I mean, keeping the quality of life good at the beginning and using the stronger one and the more toxic one after that might be something that we'll have to consider in the future with these new targeted agents that will will not cure the patients, but will take the patients for a longer period of time. Are there situations right now where you will use, well, you mentioned the cardiac situation. What other situations where you might use serafinib instead of or prior to sunitinib? I think, honestly, at that point, I mean, I don't use serafinib in first line. 
First, because, I mean, I'm waiting for some interesting trials ongoing, especially there is one ongoing trial from a German team. Looking at the sequence, Sorafinib followed by Sunitinib versus Sunitinib followed by Sorafinib. And we have provided and published some provocative data in the past showing that when you start with Sorafinib and continue with Sunitinib, it might be better than the reverse sequence, hmm. which is quite provocative. But it's also what we observed in different other studies. So there was an Italian study showing the same data. There was a U.S. study showing the same set of data. So it might be because we select the patients. Of course, we select the patients who can receive a sequence, and those who cannot are not here. But still, it raises the question whether starting with sulfony makes sense. So in my own practice today, I don't. But I think at least it supports the fact that you can do that without, I mean, probably being something absolutely stupid. Any thoughts about fatigue in serafinib versus sunitinib? I think fatigue is less. Something that we have observed in some patients is that the weight loss is probably more with serafinib than with sunitinib. And one of my fellow, I mean, recently did a very nice work about sarcopenia with serafinib. And what he observed is that the muscle body mass is decreasing over time with serafinib. Hmm. So you reduce your muscle wow. weight. Wow, so that's why you lose the weight? Yeah, that's something that you can observe, which seems to be different with sunitinib. So in some patients, that's something that we observe, and we don't know the mechanism of that so far. So it's something, but outside of that, fatigue for me is less than we have with sunitinib. What about the cardiac effects of the two drugs? What do we know about that at this point? We know that it can occur. Unfortunately, I had two patients who died from myocardial infarction on sunitinib. Obviously, I mean, they might have died too without sunitinib, but it's still, I mean, very striking when one of your patients is on drug, uh, responding well, and suddenly die from a myocardial infarction. We know that cardiac toxicity can occur. So it's probably, you probably double or triple the risk of cardiac failure and myocardial infarction. So you have to know that. You have to inform the patient that there is some cardiac risk. You have to probably be very careful about those patients who have cardiac risk factor. And then, yes, there are some cardiotoxicity. It's acceptable in terms of weight. I mean, it's probably 4 to 5%, but it can occur, yeah. What would the postulated mechanism be? We don't know exactly. Probably it's related to some receptor on the myocardial, on the myocytes. But honestly, we don't know exactly what's going on here. Maybe there are some coronary spasm or something like that occurring with this agent. I mean, all the patients I had with these events were patients with cardiac risk. But they have normal LVF at the beginning, but still they could develop that. So renal patients are patients who are usually around 60, so they are patients at risk. Many of them are smokers, past smokers. Many of them are hypertensive patients, so you know, they're at risk. To finish out, I wanted to ask you about a question we get a lot from medical oncologists, which is whether every primary renal cell cancer needs to be removed surgically in patients who present with metastatic disease. So I think that's a good question, and we have started a study to answer this question. I'm not sure that we should continue to remove the kidney in those patients who have big primary and big meds. Probably we still have to do this nephrectomy in patients with big tumor and small meds. 
But the question is, how can we answer this important question? So we have just set a study which has started in France and some countries are coming on board. UK is coming, Poland is probably coming and maybe someday the US will come to ask the question. So what we do is patients with metastatic disease with a primary in place, we randomize between sunitinib upfront or nephrectomy followed by sunitinib. And the primary point will be to look at survival in an inferiority trial. So what we think and what I think so far is that there will be no difference in terms of survival by not removing the kidney in the patients. I guess people talk also about the issue of local symptomatology from the primary. Is it going to get out of control? Are they going to have bleeding or some kind of surgical issue? I mean, again, colon erectile cancer, this is being looked at. And there's a lot of data to suggest in a patient who has an asymptomatic primary rectal colon cancer, you're better off going with systemic therapy. How often do you see that where you have, you know, an asymptomatic primary, maybe symptomatic METs? You know, it's very often that the primary is asymptomatic, and most of the primary are asymptomatic. And in fact, when you are honest, even if they have some hematuria, I mean, you can control them without doing surgery. One of the problems we have here is that those patients are seen by urologists first. And it's difficult for surgeons to accept that maybe they should not work on these patients. So that's certainly an issue we have. And actually, I mean, in many countries, and I think it's starting in the U.S., there are some good collaboration between urologists and oncologists. And we can start to discuss much more than we did in the past. We have multidisciplinary meetings with common decision on what we should do, which was not the fact in the past. And in most of the places in the U.S., in Europe, I mean, we have this kind of meeting. So it's starting to be better. But still, urologists see this patient and they say, in the meetings, they say, you know, this patient is a very severe hematuria, he has pain. In fact, when you see the patient, hematuria is not so severe. I mean, the pain is very well controlled by some analgesic, you know. What do we know about the responses seen in primary tumors to systemic agents like sunitinib? So what we know, we start to have data, but with all this neoadjuvant trial and some are coming now, so the average response is between 15 to 20% tumor shrinkage, which means that the tumor shrinkage does exist, but it's not huge. So one of the questions will be for the future, is there any plays a role for nephrectomy afterward. And my answer to that is, what do you think about removing the bladder of a metastatic bladder cancer? What do you think about removing the prostate of a... And I think at that point, if you really control the metastasis, of course, if you can remove all the disease by removing the kidney and the metastasis, it makes sense. If not, I mean, at that point, I'm not sure that it makes sense. And we've always heard that in breast cancer, but now there's some data starting to emerge that maybe patients live longer if they have their primary out in breast cancer, even in the face of metastatic disease. You know, these self-seeding hypothesis that Larry Norton and other people have. Any evidence of that in renal cell cancer? No, we don't. Although, I mean, people who still defend, I mean, nephrectomy up front, which might be true in the future, we'll see have all our retrospective data showing that those patients who had nephrectomy did better than those patients we didn't have. Of course, I mean, there are a lot of caveats that those patients who had nephrectomy are better patients than those we didn't have. And we still have, I mean, this randomized trial from the 90s right. about interferon and nephrectomy, and everybody refers to this trial. Absolutely. Uh, telling, I mean, we have this data, so 
continue to follow this guideline. I'm not sure we should do that, but I mean, at least there are this kind of data available. The other argument you hear, too, is the issue of potentially you being able to do this laparoscopically or with less morbid surgical procedures. How often can patients have their primary renal cell cancer removed this way, and how much of a difference does it make in terms of morbidity? I think there are no question here. I mean, laparoscopic nephrectomy is better than open when it's feasible. It's short time in the hospital, less morbidity, and... I think it should be recommended to every patient. But if we now go to partial nephrectomy, this is much more morbid if you do by laparoscopic than by open surgery. So for what is the standard for, especially for metastatic kidney cancer, usually you have big tumors, so it's a radical nephrectomy. I think most of the patients should have and, and in fact have a laparoscopic nephrectomy. Final question, where are we right now in adjuvant trials of renal cell cancer? When might we start to see some answers, particularly of the sunitinib serafinib placebo study? I think probably the first trial which will be available, which is a mainly European few sites, which is called S-TRAC trial, which is sunitinib versus placebo, because it's high-risk patients, and they should relapse earlier than those patients from the ASHER trial. The ASHER trial, I guess, the first data in terms of efficacy will come in four to five years from now. Wow. Not before. We'll have some interesting data from this trial, which I think they had 100 patients with sorafenib and 100 patients with sunitinib who had extensive cardiac monitoring. Hmm. So we'll get some information about the different cardiotoxicity profile. So it will be useful. But in terms of efficacy, I think it will come uh, probably four to five years. 